Hi, and welcome back to the podcast. This week's discussion is a very relevant topic on a number of different fronts, because when Rafesh, generally speaking, discusses a concept, he gives us both broad pictures, zoomed out perspectives, lenses of how to view Judaism, but also how they practically impact our lives, not only in terms of practice, but in terms of the philosophical outlook that a Jew has to the world. Once again, I always refer to Rav Hirsch's educational method as a lens. He proposes ways of looking at Judaism with the lenses Judaism offers us. And this week is a special occasion because one of his most radical or paradigm-shifting concepts is introduced in this week's parasha. So before I go through this concept, let's break it down how Rav Hirsch offers it to us. So, this week's parasha is Parshas Mishpatim. Parshas Mishpatim is one of the most well-known of the actual sections of the Bible because it deals with the social laws, the nitty-gritty social laws of how you act towards your fellow man. Your bull gores his bull, who pays? Those sort of laws. Don't kill. All these sort of ideas that are involved in the interaction between man and his fellow are discussed in this week's parasha. And this is coming off the steps of the revelation, the revelation of Harsinai, the Ten Commandments. And this kind of makes sense by way of a narrative. You first get the revelation, the impact, the introduction in general, and then it gets broken down in a normative way of how these are supposed to be manifested in people's lives. And this seems to be going very well because the opening of this week's parasha is that laid before you in detail will be the social ordinances of the Jewish people. The first commandment we are given is when an individual loses his freedom, when an individual has to sell himself because of stealing or the inability to pay back that which he owes. Approaching this without any ideological bent against the Bible, one would have to agree this is very bizarre. No discussion of other systems of gaining evidence, how a court is set up, any other method or laws that are needed in terms of being able to judge a case. Courts are discussed, but no systems are put down. Besides its inefficiency and its bizarreness, the actual commandment that we open up with is in such stark contrast to everything we've heard so far. One thing the Jewish people know about God is his love of freedom. He is the one who took them out of the slavery in Egypt. They are told constantly throughout the Bible to have empathy because they were slaves once before. The Almighty opens up the introduction of the Decalogue with, I took you out of slavery. And this moral guide that will allow them to be a light to the nations, the descendants of Avram. It opens up that when you sell a man, the only time where we limit that most sacred of human rights, personal freedom, something that the entire Torah is founded on. Rav Hirsch explains that this misconception, this question is based off a false assumption. The assumption is that the Bible is the most central book for the Jewish people. And that simply isn't the case. The relationship with what is often called the oral law, or the law that was passed down by word of mouth, or the closest assumption that we have today is what's known as the Talmud or the Mishnah, people often look at as a, an accompaniment to the Bible. The Bible being the central, the chumash that we have on our shelves, that we read in the synagogue every week, we look at it as being the central. We look at it being the most fundamental core of what we need as Jewish people, and there's an accompaniment to give us other ideas. Some are less relevant, some are more relevant, but the core, the focus, is the Bible. Rav Hirsch says this is just not the case. It's not the case for a number of reasons, both from a point of view of uh, jurisprudence, but also from the point of view of ethics and morality. The Torah is demonstrating itself out as being a system of law, but this is bad law. The Torah is demonstrating itself as being a beacon of morality, and this is how you open up? Rav Hirsch explains to us that if you look at the Bible as being the central 
pivot that everything revolves around, well, then of course you're going to have this question. But that was never the case. That was never the Jewish claim. Rav Hirsch says, how many laws must have been in mind before they came to this stage? How many systems, how many concepts must they have had in play before they came to the stage of this first commandment of when you go and sell another man, when a man sells himself into servitude? The assumption that all we had was the written law is a false assumption. The relationship he describes by way of metaphor is like one who goes to a lecture, takes notes on the lecture, and then walks away with the lecture notes. A person looks at those lecture notes and sees squiggles, sees lines, sees things emphasized. Can he recreate the lecture? The answer is no, you can't recreate the lecture just from the lecture notes. But for he who is at the lecture, the lecture notes are invaluable. That is the relationship between the oral and the written law. The lecture that is given is the oral law, the thing that Jewish people lived by for 3,000 years. The lecture notes are the laws we are presented in the written law. If you look at it from that perspective, exceptional cases, emphasis and extra words and almost indicators come to light within the written law that completely change your perspective of what the written law is. When the written law discusses a, a, an idea or a law and you're like, well, how does that make sense? Well, from a Jewish point of view, that's not necessarily supposed to make sense in isolation. Now, often this sounds like a bit of a good get out when a controversial or uncomfortable verse is put on the table. Now, I recognize there has a huge value to it, because when I'm in a university setting and I'm discussing something with a student, and a student proposes to me, well, the, oh, well, the Bible says this, and I, I say, I honestly couldn't care less. Now, of course, I don't say it in a nasty way. I say, well, I'm not committed to the Bible. The person says to me, what do you mean? You're Jewish, aren't you? You're Orthodox, aren't you? I'm like, yes, but I'm committed to the oral and the written law. In which case, if I see something that I find perplexing, morally outrageous, whatever it may be, I, my first port of call is the oral law to see how this idea was discussed throughout the centuries. I don't look at it in isolation. You drop one, I'll drop the other. I never was committed as an Orthodox Jew to the Chumash in isolation. I'm not a Karaite. Karaites were the group of or a social experiment that arose in Judaism where people took the written law as being the only idea. Now, besides that being untenable in terms of being able to live your life based off it without serious, serious consequences and bizarre, um, how do I put this, bizarre stretches and mental gymnastics, but that was never the goal. That was never the point. Now, a person can question this and say, well, how do you know you're right? Now, Rav Hirsch does go on to try and prove this, as we've already developed. But my point being, once you have this key, your way of viewing the written law completely changes. The way you view your discussion with people about what the Chumash is saying completely changes. To give you another metaphor that was given beautifully by one of my teachers in Israel, imagine you were going to your father's house and you saw on the shelf a mantelpiece, you saw the, a picture of your grandfather. And your grandfather was standing next to a beach. At which point you look at this and you say, ooh. Granddad was at a beach. Right, what do you know about it now? Well, you know your grandfather was at a beach. Well, that doesn't really tell you very much except that your grandfather was at a beach. Imagine you take the picture out of the frame and you look at the back and it says Dunkirk. How much more do you now know? Infinitely more. You know your grandfather, who he was, where he had been. So many questions spring to mind. You now have context. You now know him in a deeper more real way, the same is when it comes to the oral and the written law. To look at the written law in isolation is, from an orthodox Jewish point of view, is to really miss the point completely. It's where I like to refer to it as the Copernican revolution. Nicholas Copernicus was the one who proposed that 
that the Earth is not the center of our galaxy. The Sun is. Now this took a shift because the general assumption or the general given knowledge or wisdom from Aristotle was that, well, obviously the Earth is at the center. Copernicus proved that that wasn't the case. That was a revolution in how people looked at the world. To continue on the metaphor, Immanuel Kant in the 1700s did a similar shift. He or people from a philosophical standpoint looked at the object that we experience as being central and us as the observer going around the object, he shifted it to the us being the giver of experience, to the subjective person imparting quality onto the world around us, and in a similar way of Hirsch. Traditionally, we often look at the written law as being the central concept that is the most vital and the most important, and the oral law sort of revolves around it by way of explanation. Rav Hirsch changed that. The lecture is the oral law. That mass body of law that was passed on for thousands of years, that is the body. That was the lived experience of the Jewish people for thousands of years. And the written law is the notes. The written law is the notes, the indicator of the laws by ways of exceptions, by way of emphasis, repeating words to bring to mind the actual lecture. So we have our new concept, the concept of how we approach the written and the oral law. And he proved it. How did he prove it? He proved it by way that if you look at the Bible from where it has come from to where it is going, to start with such a bizarre case, the only time we take away man's freedom, and that being an assumption of how we're going to start off this body of law, first from the moral point of view of how are you starting like that? How is this a reflection of justice of the Torah? And the second question is, well, obviously this couldn't be in isolation without a background of legal understanding in some way, shape, or form, unless, of course, you're assuming that the Bible is not making sense. If you don't go in with that assumption that it doesn't make sense, and you go in with the assumption of charity that it will, that at least from its perspective, it is a system, you cannot escape the assumption that they must have known more beforehand. So both from the legal standpoint and the moral standpoint, he asks a question. But let's fill in just for a minute that moral perspective. Well, why this case? Why is this case so central when one man cannot afford to pay back that which he stole? He gets sold to another man. Rav Hirsch says, because this is a pillar of justice. How so? Well, how do we, generally speaking, deal with criminals? Well, we put them in jail, in which case we perpetuate the problem. 3,000 years ago, a different system was devised. When one person acts in a way that represents how he looks at the world, where he thinks he can take that which is not his, we educate him. We put him through an educational system. We put him into the home of another family. A family that has to treat him like a brother. A family that has to treat him as an equal. A family that is not allowed to overwork him. A family that has to accept him and his family. We don't break his family up. We don't move him into a situation where he is mixed with people like him. That doesn't help the problem. When a person steals, and Rav Hirsch points out this cannot be construed as a punishment, because he pays back that which he stole, not Kefel, the fine that goes on top, only what he stole. The laws that follow through of how he must be treated, how he must be cared for, illustrate that this is an educational process. And when we parallel it with how we still deal with criminals today, someone who has acted in a certain way that is beneath him, what do we do with him today? We put him in jail. We take him away from his family and we condemn his family to suffer. We put him amongst people who are like him, in which case he gets radicalized down a darker journey. The Torah proposes a different system. The system the Torah proposes is you go into the family of another Jew. You go into the family of a loving Jew who will, what do I mean loving? Because he has to treat you like one of his own. 
He has to look after you and your family. And when you leave, you go with your family. And just to end off with a symbolic expression of this idea, he works for you for six days. He works for you for six years. Six representing the physical of the days of creation. The physical world. And we set him free on the seventh. Representing transcendence. Once again, all in line with this educational process, and there are many other ideas that fit into this, of that he was addicted to the physical. Only one who steals from another. Only looks at the physical. Doesn't look at property belonging to another. He doesn't look at property as anything but physical thing that he can take. This needs to be educated in another direction. A thief looks at the world as that which he could take. The idea of ownership and belonging he is blind to. This he must learn. And this he learns in the home of another Jew. So just to recap, Rav Hirsch gave us a shift in how we look at the oral and the written law, and he proved it by way of how this opens up. How does this open up? With one who sells another man? How does that make sense in a world of justice and righteousness and a God that just took them out of slavery, which they're constantly encouraged to remember, not to oppress the stranger because you were slaves once before. You were strangers in a strange land. And also just from the simple point of a Jewish legal system, it doesn't make sense. And the shift is that the central pillar isn't the written law. The central pillar, the, the actual lecture, the picture itself is the oral law. And around it is the written law. The oral law is at the center and the written is the one revolving around it. And like any powerful metaphor, the sun is as essential as the earth is. The sun isn't more essential than the earth, and the earth isn't more essential than the sun. They're both needed. The principle that is being given over here is that they are both essential. You drop one, you drop the other. They are both needed. Their relationship he is articulating, but the center of what he is saying is, without one, you lose the other. And then we just end it off by explaining how this very first commandment, taken in this context, gives us an attribute of justice at the very first commandment of the Mishpatim. Why this law? Because it illustrates justice on a new level in such a progressive way. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful Shabbos.